0: You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian Geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, back in New York City. And this is Prashant Parmar we in Washington, D.C. It's good to be back, Prashant. Uh, for listeners, I was just uh, traveling for a week, uh, but very much glad to be back in New York so we can uh, tape another episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast. Um, Prashant, I wanted to actually focus this episode on something that you've been writing a lot about recently, uh, and certainly those of our listeners who pay attention to issues in Southeast Asia, in particular security issues surrounding the South Mm -hmm. China Sea, will be aware that Indonesia and China ended 2019 and have certainly begun 2020 with a new round of tensions concerning their overlapping waters dispute around Indonesia's Natuna Islands. And this dispute, I think, gets a little bit forgotten in the context of the South China Sea, and it also gets a little bit misunderstood, right? Because it's a little complicated. Indonesia is not actually a territorial claimant in, in the disputed waters of the South China Sea, but it does dispute its part of its exclusive economic zone, which rises up from the Natuna Islands and trespasses... Um, past what China claims with its nine-dash line claim, which is obviously an ambiguous claim uh, demarcated in dashed lines instead of straight lines. And this dispute's really come to the fore in, in the past five years or so amid wider rising tensions in the South China Sea. But Prashant, you know, I mean, you've been writing a lot about this. Um, for our listeners that might be less aware, um, do you want to just give us an update on what exactly has been going on between the two countries for the last month or so? Um, and maybe you can also tell us a little bit about uh, what the Indonesian government has been doing to uh, cope with uh, the the challenges that it's currently seeing from China.
1: Yeah, so I I think you you set the scene really well there, because this this stems from an issue that's pretty complicated, historically speaking. Because as you noted, Indonesia is not a claimant in the South China Sea dispute, strictly speaking. Um, And actually, the Indonesian government's been always wanting to be very clear about that. Um, But there is this overlap uh, between China's uh, so-called nine-dash line and Indonesia's exclusive economic zone, uh, and the Natunas, which is, uh, you know, very uh, resource-rich and Indonesia concerns uh, considers not only critical for its security, but also its, its economic development. So this is a major issue. Um, but as we've seen over the past few years, there's been, you know, any number of encounters between China and Indonesia and, and incursions into Indonesian waters perceived by Indonesia, by China. So we actually talked on this podcast, for example, back in 2016, um, March 2016, I think is the the last podcast we did on on the sort of Natuna uh, incursion issue, um, where you actually saw a, a big rise in tensions between Indonesia and China on the Natuna uh, dispute, and so we saw another round of tensions took place in the last uh, few weeks. Essentially, since uh, December, we've seen Indonesia and China embroiled in a diplomatic uh, spat over the Natunas again. Essentially, uh, to sort of generalize a little bit, what's been happening is you've seen the trespassing of Chinese vessels into uh, Indonesian waters, um, and Indonesia has essentially responded through a variety of ways. Um, Militarily, we've seen the deployment of warships and, and fighter jets that effectively constitute the largest military deployment into the Natunas in decades. I think you'd have to go back to the 1990s to actually see the last time where the Indonesians actually staged uh, m- major military exercises that actually amounted to this level of uh, sort of um, escalation or uh, at least a sort of demonstration of its commitment militarily. But also w- diplomatically we've seen Jokowi himself also pay a visit uh, to the Natunas and actually you know, sort of state very clearly that Indonesia is not gonna compromise on this issue this is something he also did back in uh, 2016 and we've seen Indonesia also launch diplomatic protests um, uh, against China on this issue. The issue really I think boils down to since we're on a geopolitics podcast, really two big questions for me uh, which we can explore. one is, you know how much of this is you know more of the same with respect to what's going on between Indonesia and China and Indonesia's response and how much of this is new? And I think you know my own sense is, a lot of the things that the Indonesians have been doing, you know, maybe there's there's a little bit of an escalation here and there, but it's effectively the same response. And this response hasn't really deterred the Chinese before from doing what they're doing. And so I don't think the issues change fundamentally. But I think the second big question for us is you know, Indonesia is the largest country in Southeast Asia, a very sort of large diplomatic player worldwide. What is Indonesia's role in terms of this big South China Sea issue? Yes, it's not a claimant but is this going to you know, help us see maybe Indonesia taking a more assertive role in, in helping manage these disputes? And I think, unfortunately, I don't see this happening anytime soon. I think Indonesia has always wanted to play a very balanced role, particularly under the Jokowi administration, as we've discussed before. Indonesia wants to preserve its interests and protect its interests, but we haven't really seen Indonesia be involved uh, in a major way diplomatically, getting some other Southeast Asian countries involved uh, taking a really active role diplomatically on the issue. Um, but maybe I'm being too pessimistic here, I'm, I'm not sure what your take is.
0: No, I think I think that's right, I mean I think for Indonesia this is really about, um, it's, it's it's a simple issue. It's it's sovereignty, it's economic sovereignty with uh, the access to the EEZ. We didn't actually define the EEZ, but uh, under, under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which both Indonesia and China have signed and ratified. Um, a coastal state gets 200 nautical miles of exclusive uh, economic zone where it has the rights to fish and exploit hydrocarbon uh, carbon resources and other things. So uh, by allowing China to kind of assert its own sovereignty here, and by the way, this this Chinese playbook is really something that's very familiar to many of the littoral states in the South China Sea, right? Philippines, Vietnam have been experiencing a China Coast Guard, Chinese fishing vessels, the so-called maritime militia. Um, asserting Chinese claims by operating further south and further out along the frontiers of the nine dash line claim. The idea being that if Chinese vessels maintain a persistent presence in these areas, China's claim, which of course was invalidated in 2016 by a ruling at the Permanent Court of Arbitration uh, in an international tribunal um, as being invalid, um, those claims then stand up. And I think the question over how Indonesia is going to react, Prashant, I mean, I was going to actually ask you that, but you did answer it. Um, I think I think that's right. I mean, uh, Indonesia's foreign policy, I think, has tended to uh, not make any sharp changes, at least, uh, mm-hmm. uh, certainly under Jokowi. There has been the reiteration of certain themes, uh, including the idea of, you know, Indonesia as, um, at mm-hmm. least in the first term, as a um, maritime fulcrum and the emphasis of maritime sovereignty as one of the world's largest uh, archipelagic states. Um but broadly speaking, I don't think that this is going to, you know, A, bring Indonesia sort of into the, quote, Indo-Pacific fold in any mm-hmm. any big way than it's already been doing. Uh, but the question I think, uh, you know, that is is the big one is how is Indonesia going to use its weight within ASEAN, where it's sort of long mm-hmm. been seen as the first among equals? And uh, as as we've discussed on recent podcasts, you do have the Vietnamese um, in um, a chairing ASEAN. And uh, that, I think, is going to raise the South China Sea, issue um, further up the agenda uh, I'm curious to hear uh, how you think this might actually um, feed back into into the ASEAN discussion and also discussions on things like a um, a binding uh, code of conduct potentially
1: yeah right I mean you're right in the sense that this plays into the broader dynamics of the South China sea we discussed on our um, podcast about you know forecasting some of the key events for for this year in terms of flashpoints and when we talked about the South China sea we mentioned you know there's you know, various reasons why the South China Sea is a flashpoint is going to be a focus this year. You have, as you mentioned, the Vietnamese chairing um, ASEAN, and also um, they're a non-permanent member in, in, in the United Nations on a rotational basis this year as well. And then you have, you know, some of the events that we saw towards the end of last year, right? Malaysia's new submission on an extended continental shelf. Uh, you had this incident with indonesia and so it is sort of an interesting question how these dynamics are going to play out i mean the other thing that um is is kind of significant is the the time is drawing down on the at least the initial timeline for the conclusion of a code of conduct on the south china sea uh which at least uh you know recently relative to previous times the chinese have been very keen on pushing and so i think one of the interesting questions will be how will China play uh, its cards in terms of trying to continue to coerce uh, as well as test uh, claimants in the South China Sea as well as non-claimant in terms of Indonesia's case, but then also try to navigate it in terms of the diplomatic path, right? Because, you know, if, if you're thinking about this from a Southeast Asian claimant state perspective, it would seem to be a little bit incompatible with the fact that China is coercing these countries, but then also asking them to to go to the table diplomatically. But I, I really do think, from a Chinese perspective, um, I don't think that they say these two things separately. I think for you know for Beijing, uh, showing its military might and actually testing and coercing coercing these countries would actually reinforce the fact of what it's doing diplomatically. Sort of say, well, listen, if you don't come to us on the table diplomatically and reach a deal on our terms, you know, this is what you're in for. And something that we've discussed on uh, other podcasts before is, you know, it's important to stress, the capabilities of these Southeast Asian states are extremely limited, and that includes Indonesia as well. In fact, uh, with the exception of Vietnam, I don't think that the Chinese really sense uh, any significant military capabilities that would actually hinder them from accomplishing what they want in terms of security objectives in the South China Sea.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to the North Natuna Sea. um, I think you know a lot of, a lot of. Uh, I guess I guess maybe not a lot, but a few American analysts at least have been sort of optimistic that this might actually bring Indonesia into the mm-hmm. uh, the U.S. fold, and that's very much not been the case. The Indonesians are very content to be at least perceived as managing this situation by themselves. You know, we have seen a, a, a different approach from the U.S. State Department, uh, certainly in the last year when we had sort of multiple. Statements come out condemning China's bullying, particularly against uh, Vietnam over the uh, oil blocks exploration issue um, with the um, the maritime survey ship last summer. if, if the United States were to simply take an interest in, in the situation right now in the north Natuna Sea and, uh, you know, begin issuing sort of public condemnations of China as being a bully, do you think that will uh, I mean, how would that go over in, in Jakarta? I mean, I think the appearance, at least publicly, might be that the Indonesians might have reached out to the United States, which, as we can tell, um, is, is not what's really happening here. But do you think that would be a, a productive development or something that Jakarta would really be uh, not too keen on at this point?
1: yeah i think that's been something that the indonesians have been thinking about you know quite actively because um you know i think as you noted in your in your question it's been a very difficult dilemma and challenge for indonesia and the situation on the one hand indonesia historically has always been very wary of uh major powers any major power whether it's you know china or the united states you know getting involved too much in the region uh for various reasons one is you know indonesia considers itself as having its own sort of regional leadership role and that can get get in the way of things, but also this this sort of notion that um, you know whatever major power is acting in the region, they're going to bring their own interests into the table, and Indonesia's interest is best protected uh, by itself taking an active role relative to other states. Um, but on the other hand, um, you know you do you do see this dynamic over the past few years. We we've talked about you know U.S. South China Sea policy before on the podcast and essentially what has been happening, particularly post uh, the sort of arbitral tribunal ruling back in 2016, it really was seen as, as, as a key moment because we were talking about, you know, previous to that, um, you know, regardless of the ruling, the United States and other countries would essentially either help enforce the ruling or make sure that China obeys by it and other Southeast Asian countries could come around that. We actually didn't see that um, after the ruling. And I think Southeast Asian states that were looking at this, um, those that were expecting a more forward-leaning U.S. response, that was a real teaching moment for them. And you saw other developments like the election of Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte and the sense that Southeast Asian states would need to take into account what happens in the South China Sea with the United States playing uh, its role uh, through freedom navigation operations and, and sort of continuing to challenge you know Chinese claims to the extent that they appear for U.S. interests, but we can't really rely on the United States to have a more active and forward-leaning role in the South China Sea in terms of helping us protect our claims. And so I, I think that has been sort of the mixed picture for Southeast Asian states. I think if you saw the United States take a more active role, there would be concern in the region, but that it would also sort of serve as a boost for some of these countries that actually think The reality of the military situation is they can't even together take on China, let alone by themselves. And so this essentially becomes more of a U.S.-China contest with its allies and partners rather than something that's just China and and Southeast Asian states, which is a very unfair game.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I think you set us up for a nice segue here by talking about a U.S.-China contest, because I do want to shift gears a little bit to talk about um, an interesting argument that was recently made by um, a friend of the podcast, uh, Gregory Poling, the director of the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at CSIS, who's uh, commonly cited. On all things uh, South China Sea, Greg and his team do a great job of keeping track of a number of things uh, in Maritime Asia. Uh, But the argument that uh, Greg made in a recent piece um, headlined, uh, The Conventional Wisdom on China's Island Bases is Dangerously Wrong, published at War on the Rocks on January 10th, um, is I think something that's worth discussing a little bit. Uh, So Greg basically pushes back at this notion that you sometimes hear, that China's investments in the seven artificial islands that it built in the Spratly Group in the South China Sea, uh, including facilities like Mischief Reef on the Philippine Continental Shelf, um, Fiery Cross Reef, um, and uh, Subi Reef, uh, three of the biggest facilities there, that these facilities, contrary to the view that they don't have any military utility and would be be sort of steamrolled by the United States in a conflict, are actually quite useful for China. And I think that's actually um, the case that Greg makes, I think, is intuitive and convincing, um, particularly in terms of how a conflict might escalate and what these islands might actually contribute in, in the South China Sea. Um, I think, I think this view is starting to catch on a little bit. I mean, you know, one of the things I think has been influencing this, this debate is that pretty much continuously we've been watching China increase the capability of these islands. So when they were being built, uh, you know, everybody observed, uh, airfields that could uh, accommodate really any aircraft in the People's Liberation Army Air Force. Um, so that was an indicator that you know these would inherently have an important capability as a as a staging mm-hmm. ground for um, potentially uh, expeditionary fighter operations in and around the South China Sea, but also in recent years we 've seen the deployment of anti ship cruise missiles anti air missiles, both of which will deny freedom of maneuver to u s surface warfare vessels and uh, aircraft in the south china sea um, that includes things like uh, P eight Poseidons, which might be involved in things like submarine hunting, right? Uh, we've okay. uh, we've certainly had many articles at the Diplomat talking about the proliferation of undersea warfare in the South China Sea, not just from the Chinese, but also from other uh, regional states, including uh, notably Vietnam, which has uh, six uh, Kilo class submarines from Russia. Um, all of this is to say, I think uh, that you know, I think it's time for um, most folks to take these island facilities a little bit more seriously than they do. I mean, the other thing uh that I talked about a little bit uh that Greg actually doesn't address in his article um but I think is important is I think there's a pretty good case to be made that China is setting up the South China Sea as a so-called bastion for its ballistic missile submarines these are um mm-hmm. the the uh, the type 94 submarines that carry the JL2 nuclear capable ballistic missile uh China doesn't necessarily have the kind of access to open ocean that it would want to have an expeditionary concept of operations for these submarines, something like the U.S. or U.K. continuous at-sea deterrence. Also, you know, China's fairly inexperienced with actually operating an undersea deterrent. Uh, but the South China Sea is important here because if you're going to de- deploy ballistic missile submarines, you're going to want to deny access to um, U.S. hunter-killer attack submarines or uh, autonomous underwater vehicles from uh, getting into the middle of the South China Sea and potentially tracking your submarines in a conflict. Right? Uh, the JL2. Act- actually doesn't have enough range to Mm -hmm. launch from the South China Sea to reach uh, most U.S. homeland targets, so they would actually have to sail out through the first island chain. And in order to have a good chance of doing that, China would need to exercise pretty good control over the United States' ability to track these vessels um, in peacetime. Uh, so that's just a few thoughts for me on on this interesting article from Greg. Uh, I'm wondering um, where you come down on on the military uh, value of these facilities. Also, uh, tell us a little bit about how, um, you know, Southeast Asian states are, are thinking about this when it comes to their own military procurement and strategy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I agree with you that, you know, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, Greg wrote this piece and, and published it because I, I do think we've seen, you know, a real gap uh, in terms of perceptions between what you hear from uh, military planners in the United States and and sort of generalists who don't look at the at the South China Sea very closely, and those people who look at the South China Sea closely, but then also uh, Southeast Asian states and and Southeast Asian governments, and you see you know them being a lot more concerned about these facilities and islands um, than you see uh, the United States and some of the some of the generalists are, and I think part of that is a framing question. And, and that's why I'm glad that Greg framed his piece in that way. You know, usually the question is asked very generally, sort of, oh, you know, don't question the US ability to take out these islands. You know, and would these islands really change fundamental military dynamics uh, for the United States? And if you ask the question generally, you, the answer is always going to be no, irrespective of what the Chinese are doing until you get to a point where that's not possible. But I think what Greg usefully asks is, you know, the key questions are, first, how difficult would it be for the United States to actually disable these facilities? And then secondly, you know, how would these facilities actually play into, and that's what you were getting at with um, the other aspects like ballistic missile submarines, you know, how do these facilities actually play into China's broader capabilities? And how would the United States deal with these facilities given all the other requirements that the United States has, and given limitations of U.S. capabilities, right? The United States is not a, a country that is completely invincible, and China's military capabilities are growing as well. And so we, if you frame it that way, you get to some of the points that that Greg, which I think are, are really important. You know, one is the United States could likely take out these facilities, but it's going to actually require a lot of work. And he goes through in a lot of detail, you know, how much work that's going to require, you know, from the, you know, the amount of ordinance that it would take to actually, if there is a contingency where China is actually uh, threatening on various fronts, the United States may have to divert some of these capabilities from Northeast Asia to actually tackle the South China Sea. So, you know, that's one dimension of this. How difficult would it be? But then the second aspect of this that he raises is also, I mean, how do the Chinese actually think about the utility of these islands? And and the fact is, the utility of these islands are not just something that they're thinking about in peacetime. They're actively thinking about this. As how they would utilize this in wartime, and it's not just about you know their ability to create situational awareness, but it's also, I mean, these are facilities that, as you mentioned, could be used uh, with other Chinese capabilities to actually make China's military capabilities in the South in the South China Sea quite significant. So if you reframe the question that way, I think there's a lot more concern for the United States than if you frame it. As a general question of oh the united states is very uh, capable militarily and so we don't have to worry about
0: this yeah no i think i think i think that's a that's a good note um there's also you know the issue i think this is a separate question for a separate podcast but about you know how we imagine escalation um spreading Mm -hmm. to the south china sea i mean increasingly in recent years um you know i've actually come around to and, and i don't know maybe you disagree with this but i think the The likelihood of a U.S.-China conflict beginning in the South China Sea is, I think, lower than the probability of a U.S.-China conflict spreading to the South China Sea, because I still think Mm -hmm. the main scenario that we should be thinking about is a Taiwan Strait's contingency and how the South China Sea factors into that is, I think, very important. The other issue I'll just say, and maybe this, again, we can talk about on the next podcast that we do about the South China Sea, is um, why I think coming to the conclusion that these islands are defensible and militarily useful matters for the U S Philippine Alliance. Right. I mean, for things like, um, continued American investment in EDCA, uh, the operationalization of a, a regular rotational American presence, uh, you know, Potentially even things like the Philippines procuring the Brahmos missile from India, which we've been hearing more and more about in in past weeks, why all of those things uh, start to take on an importance in a very different way, depending on your assessment of China's capabilities in the South China Sea. So certainly I think, uh, you know, this is a a discussion worth having. Um, And obviously, I mean, you know, to talk a little bit about the work that... uh, Greg and his team and other analysts have been doing in the open source, uh, it's very important to track the actual capabilities that China is actually deploying on these facilities, right in, mm-hmm. in late 2019, for example, we saw China deploy a static aerostat, basically a blimp, a tethered blimp which might contribute to um, early warning for things like low-flying cruise missiles. So for example, if you're worried about uh, something like a American subsonic cruise missile strike on one of your air, um, on one of your airstrips, uh, like the kind that uh, you know, in twenty seventeen, President Trump authorized against um, Syria. Uh, that would be something that you would deploy to potentially uh, give you early warning, uh, flush out your your fighters before those missiles arrive. Um, so, I think I think you know those kinds of things are something that we should be paying a lot more attention to. I think the specifics very much matter in how we think about uh, the value of these facilities. Anything else yeah, to I add, know, Sean? I-
1: I, I hope, uh, you know, what, you know, Greg's piece actually, you know, stimulates more of a debate and we actually get, you know, some counterpoints from from folks who actually think these facilities um, are actually, and, and, and there are cases to be made, right? I mean, we have seen, you know, indications that, you know, these facilities are still quite vulnerable. Uh, things like resupply are not going to be easy to do. Um, you know, if there's been any number of reports about, you know, their vulnerability to weather conditions and such. But we shouldn't dismiss entirely their utility. And so if there is a case out there um, that we we shouldn't be as concerned and that um, this is military something that the United States would find easier to do, I don't think it's sufficient for the United States and, and those people who think that that is the case to just say, well, you know, we got it and, you know, this is all classified and we're not able to discuss it. I think you know hopefully we have a more robust discussion as to the points that that we've brought up here right and and that greg brings up in the piece which is i mean how would the united states respond if this is something which as you said is spreading into the south china sea and the united states has to deal with things on on multiple fronts and if the chinese are thinking about this in, in a wartime situation with respect to all their other capabilities how would the united states address the islands as part of that wider scenario rather than just focusing on the islands themselves which i think completely misses the point. I don't think anyone is suggesting that China is only using their islands you know, to, in, a, in a situation with the United States and the South China Sea.
0: That's right. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. uh, you know, just one more thing is I think uh, th- the value of the islands early in a crisis uh, versus mm-hmm. uh, later in a crisis I think is also um, worth um, distinguishing when we talk about these things, right? Because things like logistics and supplies and a reloading for um, surface to air and anti-ship missiles, um, a lot of that doesn't matter early in the crisis when you're ready to go and you've been maintaining mm-hmm. these facilities. But yeah, as the crisis proceeds, the value of the islands, I think, quickly depreciates. And I actually, you know, for what it's worth, I do find the um, the environmental and climate change uh, arguments to be um, a little bit compelling. I mean, uh, there's already been evidence that uh, some of the land mm-hmm. reclamation work that China's done has been adversely affected by weather conditions. Uh, and you know, this is a part of the world that does regularly see uh, typhoons. Um, so it'll be it'll be interesting to see um, how how this develops over the longer term. Um, but Prashant, I think uh, we'll end it there for today. How, how does that sound? Great. Uh, thanks a lot for joining me. And um, I'm sure we'll come back to many topics on the South China Sea sooner rather than later, I think, um, as I just highlighted in my first newsletter. Uh, again, if you don't subscribe, you can subscribe to that at diplomat.substack.com. Uh, but I talked a bit about the top risks that I think are worth watching in the Asia-Pacific in early 2020. And the South China Sea, I think, is is steadily rising, right? I think we saw that in the second half of 2019, certainly. Uh, for a while, the South China Sea had... Uh, I think it depreciated in terms of the attention that it was receiving. But I think 2020 is, again, going to be a big year uh, in this region, especially given um, China's practice of its uh, coercive tactics against multiple claimants and non-claimants alike. So uh, certainly something we'll keep an eye on. Uh, So Mm -hmm. if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while... Please uh, make sure that you leave us a review. It helps other people discover the podcast and uh, really helps us kind of rise in uh, the recommendations for folks. You can uh, leave us a review on uh, Google Play Music, uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, TuneIn, Spotify, any number of other providers. And finally, before we close, a note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering this region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risk. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.